Aquillow. Season 3. Chapter 8 of Cakes and Dogs. Fred lied. I thought I was getting the hang of being Doris, or at least of being who I imagined Doris used to be. There's this image in my mind of my great-grandaunt standing behind the counter of the Aquilo Cafe. Old and wizened, she smiles as each customer walks in. For most of them, she already has their order ready. Doris was, in my mind's eye, more of a bartender and therapist than a mere purveyor of coffee and baked goods. She did what I'm trying to do now, what I've been trying to do ever since I started working at the Aquilo Cafe, ever since I accepted that this was, at the very least, a step in my own journey. And usually I'm good at it, better than I had ever expected I should be. Without instructions and without guidance, apart from the occasional cryptic mumbling from Olivia or the strong hand of Helen Edna, notary public, I figured out how to handle some pretty heavy stuff. But I can't help feeling like Doris would have seen right through Frederick Ashton's lie. She'd have called him out on it or played along and tricked him into coming clean. Me? I bought it. I was relieved. Maybe I had a touch of doubt scratching at the back of my brain, like an unwelcomed aftertaste. But I bought it. I was more worried about what happened to Thomas Sinclair or if Gulliver was going to show up than listening to my gut. I should know, better than most, how important it is to listen to your gut. So what did happen to Thomas Sinclair? Well, I was right. He got lost. In fact, he got so lost that I had to go to the Pickering Farm at two in the morning to ask for help tracking him down. Let me tell you, it's a good thing I'm on somewhat good terms with Richard Daniel Pickering. He's not a frequent customer, far from it, but he's a common recipient of Olivia Figg's overflow apples. While whatever goodwill I have towards him is by proxy, there's an overwhelming amount of it. I'd be as much of a liar as Fred if I didn't admit to getting a bit of a thrill with how we did find Thomas. First of all, Richard's solution for getting Sinclair back was to use Darling and Dragon, his dogs. Dragon is a basset hound. Purebred, I've been told, on every possible occasion. I don't know or care how true or important that is, and frankly, I always assumed Dragon was more of a vanity dog. It seems, however, that the one trick he can pull is to track people down. Useless for game, Richard tells me, but he'll follow a kid that stole a chicken for miles if asked. Darling is another beast entirely. Judging by her size, there has to be some measure of Great Dane in her DNA, but everything else is anyone's guess. At a glance, she might be mistaken for an angry horse. She acts like one, too. Growls at anything and everything. Once, on a delivery with Henry, I saw her try to bite her own shadow. The only reason to bring Darling on this hunt is that Dragon refuses to go without her. If we want to track down Sinclair, we have to endure the snarling and incessant growling of Darling. Worth it. We found Thomas within half an hour. Richard Pickering didn't even bother putting on real clothes for the adventure. 
He strode out of his home wearing thick flannel pajama pants and a Canada goose coat, the real thing. His head covered with a fur hat and his hands hidden with snowmobile gloves. Flanking him were his dogs, neither of them on a leash. That made me a little nervous as Darling kept staring at me and baring her fangs. Thomas didn't wind up going very far in the end. He must have walked around in circles for hours before deciding to give up and wait for death. Dragon found him, sitting at the foot of an old maple, not a kilometer from the farmhouse. If he had been just a little more industrious, he probably could have found his way to the road, which passes perhaps 200 feet from where he sat down. It was worth having Darling with us, because, as happy as Thomas was to see the precious and friendly Basset Hound bounding happily towards him, he almost fainted when he met his companion. The whole scene is more hilarious in hindsight. In the moment, I, too, was convinced that Darling was going to tear Sinclair's throat out. Now, to be fair, getting lost in the woods at night isn't difficult. Even if civilization is just over the next hill— Without much sound and with trees blocking your sight, it becomes easy to miss the obvious. And to Thomas's credit, he gave Pickering pretty much every last bill from his wallet as thanks. Considering how paranoid he is about using electronic payment methods and credit cards, because that's how they get you, he tells me, that amount looked pretty generous. Richard Pickering didn't even pretend to refuse, arching his eyebrows and stuffing the money in his pajama pocket before guiding us back. It did win us a drive to town, though, and that was a welcome gesture. The unfortunate side of this particular adventure is that I didn't get a chance to question anyone from the Donsolites about Fred's whereabouts. All I got was the nervous reassurance from Annabelle that he'd be back any minute, that he probably just needed a break or had a headache or whatever. Originally, I wanted to go look for Fred, but I waited for Thomas to come back so I'd have his flashlight— by the time I gave up on the former and went looking for the latter and then found him, it was too late to get back to the clearing. Too late to look for Fred. We're going to get the same runaround we got for the girl, Thomas complained the next morning. I'm a little impressed. Richard Pickering dropped me off at the Aquila at a quarter after three in the morning and still had to bring Thomas to the motel. Yet, as I unlocked the cafe, groggy and fighting to keep my eyes open, he was one of the first customers to stroll in. Not that he looked particularly energized himself. He ordered two cups of coffee, despite my reassurances that refills were free, and orange juice for the vitamins. Now he's doing a post-mortem of our investigation. We could question Ms. Ashton, he continues, or at least inform her that her son is missing, but I don't know what that would gain us apart from being courteous. Do we want to do that, though, before we're even sure he's gone? That's Gulliver, unknowingly doing me the favor of answering in my stead. It's hard enough tending to the cafe, but doing so while also entertaining Thomas Sinclair is a challenge I'm simply not up to this morning. You're right, Thomas answers, sipping on coffee too hot and burning his tongue in the process. Ouch. Yeah, we should try and find out as much as we can before we put a mother through that kind of anxiety. For all we know, he just went home. How embarrassing would that be? I replaced the plate of muffins Gulliver just finished with two croissants and a dollop of whipped butter. I feel like there's something I should be doing. I keep walking to the kitchen to check if I have everything I need for the day. 
Sandwich fixings are prepared. Veggies have been selected and chopped. Chicken strips have been removed from the marinade. All I need to do is assemble them before lunch. There's plenty of ground coffee, and the display is filled with a mix of fresh and day-old pastries. I check my calendar, just to make sure this isn't Stefan's day off or that he's moved his shift or something, but everything is as usual. Hopefully, it's just the lack of sleep playing with my nerves and making me paranoid. I wish I could say it's something that's happened before, but I've burnt the midnight oil often enough without that kind of stray thought manifesting. Okay, so the only thing to do is go back and look for signs of Fred in the forest, Thomas explains to Gulliver. The two of them look like a couple of conspiring kids playing a game. If the situation wasn't so real, it'd be laughable. We tried that, Thomas, I interject. There was nothing. Nothing? Gulliver asks. There was a hellgate, but that isn't something I want to talk about. Not at the cafe. Not with Gulliver. Fortunately, I don't have to. The chimes to the Aquilo come to my rescue by announcing a fresh customer. Who will it be? I turn around expecting Olivia Fig, perhaps dressed to meet clients again. Part of me hopes it's Helen Edna, notary public, if only because her presence tends to quiet the most outlandish of Gulliver's conversations. Hell, I'd love to see Detective Wilson so I can ask a professional what our next step should be. Or if maybe now he can get involved. Instead, it's Julia Remington who passes the threshold, dressed in black, as is her fashion, but smiling the smile of a woman in love. She walks like a teenager about to go on a date with her high school sweetheart. And that's when it dawns on me. I remember what I've forgotten. I'm here to pick up you-know-what. Julia flashes a mouthful of small, perfectly white teeth. This is how the widow's been for months now. Though I'm not sure if widow is the proper term. I honestly don't know what to call Julia anymore. I doubt there's a word for people like her. I doubt there are any other people like her. Oh dear, I say, wiping my hands on my apron. It's the anxiety making me do it. My hands are clean, apart from the shame of what I have to admit. I'm sorry, Julia. I've had something come up, and I haven't prepared the cake yet. I offer a tight smile, arching my eyebrows to express further contrition. This has been our ritual for over a year now. Every week, Julia Remington buys a cake from me. It's a special cake, a recipe that was her husband's favorite while he was alive. I suppose it remains his favorite to this day. With everything going on, though, it completely slipped my mind. It's embarrassing for me, but devastating for her. Oh. The disappointment in her voice is like a knife in my ribs. That's fine. I know how busy you can get. Julia forces a smile and winks, making a valiant effort to be a team player. But we're not a team going through hard times. She's a friend and customer, and I'm letting her down. Despite her wealth, there's very little joy the widow Remington gets out of life. A small cake once a week is so very little to ask to correct that. It's not fine. I reach across the counter and take her hand. I'll have it done by tonight, and I'll deliver it to your place myself. Oh, you don't have to do that. But I do, and the silent gratitude in her eyes tells me that despite the polite words, she thinks so too. 
It'll be fine, though. I've made that cake over 50 times. I can do it in my sleep. Brioche, my raccoon, probably knows how to make it from watching me all these months. The ingredients will be prepared between customers this morning. I'll tell Stefan to handle the lunch rush on his own, which is a bit of an ask, but he can take care of it. And I'll do the actual baking in the afternoon. It'll be fine. What kind of cake? Thomas's voice is curious and hungry. Even though he and Gulliver have gone through a sizable part of my display in pastries and muffins, there's still something insatiable in those words. Oh, Julia answers, happy to feel included. It's orange honey poppy seed cake. Not my favorite, but Gary loves it so much. Sounds delicious. Gary's got good taste. I think, briefly, that maybe I should make a second cake. It's not much more trouble, and if I can sell it to Thomas Sinclair... That's just good business. Had good taste, Julia says, making my stomach sink as I can see where this conversation is going to go. I'm afraid he passed a while back. Julia is such a sweet woman, with nothing but the best of intentions. But she lacks a filter and doesn't know who Thomas Sinclair, host of Stranger Limits, is. And he still gets cake. My condolences, but is it weird that I kind of envy him? I hope he appreciates the gesture. I've said and thought a lot of negative things about Sinclair since I met him. But one thing that's becoming evident is that he has a knack for ferreting out the kind of story his podcast listeners crave. It's like a superpower. Julia might only see a friendly, if a bit awkward, stranger sitting at the counter of her favorite coffee shop. But I know better. I've identified Thomas Sinclair as the threat he is— and a threat to the very category of people Julia Remington is, the good-hearted and maybe a little naive. So, I try to interrupt before it's too late. Can I offer you some breakfast to make up for my negligence? She ignores me. Gary has assured me that he does, in more ways than one. Is the widow Remington being lasciviously suggestive? Julia? I make a second, half-hearted attempt to stem the tide. Do you get feedback from Gary very often? Thomas asks, holding her attention much better than I can. He never breaks eye contact while fishing out his notebook and pen. Once a week, when I get my cake, she answers with a sideways glance in my direction. Oh, now she acknowledges me. I never figured sweet old Julia Remington for the passive-aggressive sort, but here we are, I guess. Part of me, I'm not sure if it's the young adult or full adult part, wants to leave Julia to her fate after that little remark, but common sense prevails. I'm sorry, Julia, I say. I will absolutely make it up to you. Are you sure you wouldn't want something to take home in compensation? Finally, after all this, she smiles at me, and I think I've got the compassionate Julia Remington back from wherever she had gone. Oh no, it's fine. You say you'll bring the cake to my place? Are you sure you wouldn't rather I come pick it up? It's a tempting offer. After all, I don't have a car. Aside from taking a taxi or begging a favor, I have no way of getting to Remington Manor. But my mouth is faster than my brain, and before sorting all that out, I'm already adding to my problems. Absolutely not, I say. This is the very least I can do after forgetting your cake like this. If nothing else, it'll teach me to be more organized in the future. All right, then. I'll see you tonight. Don't worry about what time. Just bring the cake over when it's ready. 
She turns to Thomas and flashes her smile at him again. And it was nice to meet you, mister. Here we go. Thomas's eyes grow wide with excitement, but instead of putting out his hand to shake, he digs into his fanny pack before proudly offering one of his business cards. Thomas Sinclair, podcaster, he declares. I can see Gulliver put on a proud smile, smug by proxy. Since when is podcaster something one brags about? Or am I the one acting old and out of touch? Well, Julia says before leaving, I'll let Gary know I've made a new friend. The door chime sends the widow Remington on her way, leaving me to roll my eyes and try to forget this whole interaction. I go through the inventory of ingredients for the cake in my head. I think I'm good on honey, but I might have to run out and get some poppy seeds. I still have plenty of the sigils Julia drew for me, and I make a mental note to pick out one of the nicer ones. I find that those in which she's put the most care are only second in potency to those that are messy with emotion. Wait, do I still have oranges? I'm about to duck into the kitchen to check on things when Thomas interrupts me. So, what time should I pick you up? I'm sorry, what? There's no point in even trying to hide my surprise at his question. In fact, it takes me some time to even comprehend what he's asking. To go to Miss Remington's place. <laughs> I laugh. The absolute gall of that man to assume he's coming with me to Julia's home. Oh, no, 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 I say. This is a private family thing that Julia does in memory of her husband. It's not an opportunity to weasel out an interview or a piece for your podcast. His little eyes go wide and his mouth takes the shape of an O. I don't think he's playing at being shocked, but rather genuinely offended and wounded by my implication. I almost feel bad. Okay, he collects himself. That's a fair assumption. And yeah, I'm a bit curious about a woman who claims to have interactions with her dead husband, but maybe I just want to offer you a lift. You don't have a car, I understand. And I don't think there's much of a public transit system in Aquilo, is there? Thankfully, I have the stereo system in the cafe playing some alternative folk music, otherwise I'm sure Thomas would have heard me growl. Actually, I say, struggling to keep my temper in check, I was hoping Gulliver might take me. To make a point of my request, I take Gulliver's coffee mug and refill it for him before sliding it back. Oh, sorry, Miriam, he says, deflating me before he can even finish. I've got to get out of town by two this afternoon. I need to pick up some PPE from Montreal and get them to a distribution center in Quebec City. If you can have the cake done by then, I can drop you off on my way, though. My mind races as I attempt to do the math. The cake doesn't take that long to make. About an hour between mixing and baking, and cooling isn't that big of a deal. But this isn't just a cake. This is a witch's cake. I'm not simply slapping some ingredients into a bowl, sticking it under the KitchenAid, and then sliding it all in the oven. To make a cake that will satisfy even the dead, one needs to pour in some work. Stirring is done by hand, with intent. Every step of the process needs to be infused with thoughtfulness. The magic isn't the ingredients, it's their preparation. And that cannot be rushed. At the end of the day, I could make the cake in time to catch a ride with Gulliver, but not without risk of compromising the results. I've already disappointed Julia once, and I'm loath to do it again. Fine, I say. Be here at five. 
I've never driven a child to Disney World. Hell, I've never driven a child to Six Flags or even the neighborhood park. Apart from getting my license at 16 and a few rare occasions where I had to drive out of necessity, I've seldom been behind the wheel of a car. Hell, I'm not behind one now. I do feel like I'm experiencing what I've described, though, except in this situation, the child is driving and I'm the passenger. Being responsible for the safe operation of a motor vehicle, even one as ridiculous as his red El Camino, doesn't mean Thomas is bouncing any less than a toddler would at the thought of meeting Mickey Mouse or whatever. Hence, the ride to Julia Remington's place is a particularly terrifying one especially considering he doesn't know the way and refuses to use his GPS. That's how they track you, you know, he explained. They have their satellites bounce a signal on your phone and triangulate your position, or they use the ping from cell towers. That way, they always know where you are. I want to tell him that that's the whole point of GPS, but it's impossible to slip a word in edgewise. I don't use GPS, and I turn off all the location services on my phone. In fact, if I didn't need a phone, I'd throw the damn thing out the window right now. That's why I don't use my phone to take photos, either. They put metadata on the photos with the phones. A ton of personal information on every shot you take, and you can't even remove it. What must it be like, I wonder, to live such a paranoid life? Limiting, I think. I don't want to say it's a miracle we make it to Julia Remington's manor alive, but I still whisper a quiet thanks to the powers that be for making it happen. Kissing the ground as I exit the vehicle would be rude, but I'm no less glad to be out of this death trap. I might opt for a taxi on the way home, or maybe a brisk walk to clear my head. Julia's house isn't technically a mansion. It is, however, the largest private domicile in Aquillow. It's located on a large piece of property at the outskirts of town, and was once, I'm told, farmland. In the decades since Julia and her husband Gary moved to Aquilo, nature's been allowed to reclaim the land, and what portions haven't are covered in rose gardens, flower beds, and well-manicured grass. There's a stone patio area in the back with a pond and even a decorative well. In other words, the landscaping of the Remington home is all about opulence and beauty. That's why most people call it a mansion. I've been here more than a few times, so I'm no longer as awe-stricken by the trappings of luxury. Thomas, however, if he was a child on his way to Disney World, he's now that same boy at the gates of the Magic Kingdom. He looks at the large porch atop the stone steps as one looks upon Main Street, USA. Instead of dreaming of cotton candy and cartoon characters made flesh, he's taken in by the wrought iron accents to the windows and the covered portico. It's a little naive, but at the very least, I get it. There's no harm in doing a little gawking, and he might as well commit it all to memory because we are not staying. You can wait here. It won't be a minute, I tell him, though I know, deep down, he's not listening. I miss seeing a ghost? What? What are you even talking about? We step out of the El Camino. My head swivels about by instinct, looking for anyone who might have seen me, ensuring there aren't any witnesses to this disgrace. In my hand, there's a small box with a cellophane window on top and a screen-printed logo of the Aquilo Cafe. A sage-colored ribbon finishes up the decoration, tying the box closed. In that box, there's magic. But Thomas doesn't know that. 
Julia said she has assurances that her late husband is enjoying your cakes. That means she has to have some way of communicating with him. Either he's the one transcending the veil of death, or she has some means of bridging the gap herself. I sigh. He's no less exhausting now than he's been this whole week. But also, he's on to Julia. To me. Or maybe Gary is dead and Julia just enjoys the cakes to honor his memory. I attempt to deflect his reasoning. This does give Thomas some pause, but while I'm hoping that perhaps he'll find reason in my words and let this one go, he doesn't. Instead, like a tick, he digs himself deeper. Oh, so the memory of her husband is what's manifesting, he explains, dead serious. It's not his spirit or his soul, but the echo of his presence, like a residual energy imprinted in the walls and floors. I turn around, wearing my best imitation of an annoyed but authoritative mother, a facial expression I learned from Helen Edna, with the intention of telling Thomas to stay by the car. There's no way that, if he interacts with Julia, he won't make a complete ass of himself and turn a simple delivery into an awkward and humiliating mess. The opportunity is abruptly stolen from me, however. Miriam! The soft yet warm and welcoming voice of Julia Remington calls out from the front door. I knew you'd make it. Oh, and Mr. Sinclair is here with you. Well, come in, come in. Not since the first time walking into Julia's house have I felt this much of a shadow of impending doom fall over me. I pass the threshold into the foyer, small box held close to my abdomen. The cold has caused the cellophane to fog up from the residual moistness of the cake. It doesn't matter. It won't ruin the cake, and even if it did, I don't think the ultimate consumer will mind. Then, at the edge of hearing, comes the sound of what may be my very last chance to get Thomas out of here before he witnesses too much. It's the sound of enthusiastic scratching and excited panting. It's loud and hurried, calling out from the dark corridor on the left behind Julia. I'm reminded of a stampede with each step that echoes down that path and I smile. If anything is going to scare Thomas Sinclair, podcaster, Bigfoot hunter, and UFO chaser away from Remington Manor, it'll be Oswald. The massive dog thunders into the foyer with the subtlety of a freight train in a teacup. His soot-gray fur is as shiny as ever, picking up the rare light from the windows and glistening silken reflections. If he wasn't so excited to see strangers, tongue lolling out of his jaws and eyes bugging out of his skull, he would be a creature of pure grace and class. Instead, he very nearly slides to the floor as he tries to stop himself on the marble tiles. His attention is entirely on Thomas. He's the new voice and the new smell, the object of the dog's curiosity. Oswald is almost as tall sitting as I am standing. He is, in all likelihood, the reason why Julia doesn't bother activating her complex and sophisticated alarm system, except when she leaves town for more than a day, which is not something she does often. It's my hope that this creature will make Thomas sufficiently uncomfortable that he decides to pack it in, that there's no ghost to see in this woman's home after all, and that it's getting late anyways. I want to give Julia her cake and leave her be. But that's not to pass. Who's a good boy? Thomas is totally a dog person. That's Oswald, Julia confirms like a proud mother. 
Just like that, the jig is up, and Oswald is unmasked as the gentle teddy bear he actually is. The only thing left is the Hail Mary. Well, I say, holding out the box, here's your cake. You'll probably want us to get going now, I suppose. I beg. Oh, don't be silly, Julia says, ignoring the proffered box. You came all this way. Surely you'll indulge in some tea before you go. Besides, someone wants to thank you. She winks, and I dread to realize what it is she's implying. Julia turns on her heels and beckons us to follow. I step forth, cake in hand, giving Oswald a baleful look as I lockstep with the mistress of the house. Traitor, I whisper in the dog's direction. As I feared, Julia takes us deep into her home, retracing the steps I'd taken over a year ago on a similar errand. Our ultimate destination is a small study. It's not as cluttered and messy as I remember. Julia has been tidying it up in the last few months. Some books have been put away, and gone are the empty cups with logos from my cafe. The desk, however, and the couch remain the same. I can almost smell the residual aroma of sharp orange and sweet honey from the previous cakes that have been consumed here. Sit, Julia instructs. I'll get us some tea. I have a big selection. As she wanders off, Thomas settles onto the couch. He still has his imitation Canada Goose coat and his hat. The ensemble makes him look silly, and I realize I, too, am still dressed for the outdoors. I know well enough not to sit on that couch. But I also put the box with the cake on the desk so I can take off my own coat and hat. Hopefully, Thomas sees this and takes the hint that if we're guests, and if we're going to make ourselves at home, by sitting on Gary Remington's favorite ratty couch, for example, we might as well act welcome. I stuff my hat into the sleeve of my coat, which I then fold over the back of a nearby chair. The couch behind me complains of a shifting weight, and I take it to mean that Thomas Sinclair has taken the hint and decided to emulate my actions. Small blessing, I know, but maybe we'll get out of here without an incident. If all goes well, we'll share some tea, exchange some small talk, and then leave Julia and her husband alone. When I turn, that is not the scene that greets me. No. Thomas still has his coat on, but now he's leaning over the desk, the ribbon from my box untied and the lid open. What are you doing? I hiss through gritted teeth. It's too late, though. The smell of sweet cake intensifies, accompanied by a freshness to the lingering citrus aroma. This part is to be expected. All the delicious flavors trapped in the box are finally released like a flower blooming and spreading its perfume. For a moment, that's all it is. Thomas being curious and rude and making some faux pas. But soon, there's more. The lights go off in the office, and it's the first hint that something isn't right. My eyes barely have time to adjust to the darkness than a blinding light assaults them. Dad, turn that off! My complaining does nothing. Thomas is still holding his flashlight, still in front of the old desk. He's no longer leaning in, though, and has taken a step back. The open box burns bright in the beam of light. I can't see what's inside from where I stand, but I can see what's got Thomas Sinclair so stunned. Where only a large, wine-red leather chair stood empty under the soft light of the office, the features of Gary Remington now stare back at Thomas from across the desk. And the apparition does not look pleased. 
Aquilo is written by J.F. Dubow and narrated and produced by me, Amy Frost. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. Want to support the show? Buy us a coffee. Go to ko-fi.com slash Aquilo to donate. Aquilo has a Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash Aquilo for details. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the username Aquilo.